Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to a history of Europe, the Siege of Kazan of 1552, part two of three. In October 2016, took place in the Russian city of Oryol, the unveiling of the first ever statue of Tsar Ivan IV of Russia, known as Ivan the Terrible. The nationally televised event officially celebrated the 450th anniversary of the founding of the city of Orion, established as a fortress to defend Moscow's southern borders. It caused mixed reactions among Russians, dividing those who favour the rule of the strong leader and others who decry the type of repression and authoritarianism symbolised by Ivan the Terrible. Indeed, it was not difficult to spot the political subtext from the words of the governor of the Oriol region, Vadim Potomsky. Quote, We have a great and most powerful president who has forced the whole world to respect Russia and to reckon with us, as did Ivan the Terrible in his own time. God is with us. End quote. The debate about the statue is as much about Russia's future as its past. When major historical characters or events are given prominence by today's leaders, it becomes even more important to learn their true story, as is the aim of this podcast. Ivan IV is the first Russian leader for whom we are fortunate enough to have a number of good, quality, contemporary sources with which to assess the Tsar and his leadership. The common perception is of a ruthless autocrat, perhaps even half-crazed, who did not hesitate to commit mass murder to achieve his political objectives. His moniker of the Terrible derives from the so-called Oplichnina, a secret police force that spread mass terror and executed thousands of people. However, the Terrible is a poor translation of the Russian word Grozny, which means something more like the fearsome. The sports pundits might put it, Ivan had a reign of two halves, the first years with a very different character than the later ones. It is in that latter part of his reign where he commits his worst atrocities, and so earned his notoriety. This episode, which focuses on Russia's war with the neighbouring Khanate of Kazan, will cover only Ivan's earlier years. During his final days, Ivan's father, Grand Prince Vasily III, did his best to arrange an orderly succession. He left his widow and their two infant sons in the care of kinsmen, and set up a regency council of seven members. 
Yet almost immediately after his death, the court of Moscow descended into a brutal and ongoing struggle for power between the powerful aristocratic clans. It was a terrifying environment for Ivan to grow up in, especially after the death of his mother in 1538. It is rumoured by poison. Deprived of his mother's protection at the age of just seven, Ivan's life seems to have entered a particularly unhappy period. His younger brother, Yuri, had been born deaf and dumb, but seems to have been some comfort as a companion. Ivan was never directly threatened, but must have been constantly on his nerves, witnessing the death or imprisonment of those around him who fell victim to court intrigues. At least for the young prince, the warring nobles made no attempt to undermine his right of succession. In fact, the monopolisation of power by a single line of the dynasty was promoted by the elite courtiers, who saw this as the best way to perpetuate their own privileged positions. Over time, however, Ivan grew increasingly resentful of the fact that the nobles were acting on his authority, yet leaving him no real power. Officially, as the Grand Prince, he played a leading role in court and church ceremonies, received ambassadors on the throne, and was outwardly accorded respect and adulation. But away from the spotlight, he later claimed, he was neglected and subjected to numerous indignities. His smouldering resentment at his treatment is clear in a series of his letters, written in the 1560s to a nobleman, Andrei Kurbsky. Here, the Tsar complained that he lacked food and clothing, and of a lack of due respect shown to him and his family. For example, he wrote, quote, I remember how we would play our children's games, while Prince Ivan Vasilievich Shusky sat on a bench with one elbow resting on our father's bedstead, and his foot up on a chair, end quote. Not only, he wrote, was my will not my own, but everything I experienced was unbefitting to my tender years. Thus writes Bob Benson Bobrick in his book, Fearful Majesty, the Life and Reign of Ivan the Terrible. Quote, Ivan grew up morbid and excitable, mutually ravaging at the discrepancy between his title and his power. His natural timidity was warped and exaggerated into nervous terror by the revolting lawlessness around him, and the instinct of self-preservation began to dominate his conscious life. End quote. Ivan's disturbed state of mind is evidenced by the stories that at the age of 12 he began torturing animals for entertainment. Yet Ivan also received a good education, and by all accounts was very intelligent and keen on learning. He was trained in music and writing, was a connoisseur of icon painting, a fine horseman and an expert in military arts. Ivan's minority formally ended in January 1547, when he was crowned Tsar in the Cathedral of the Domitian, also known as the Uspensky Cathedral, in the Kremlin. Ivan became the first Russian ruler to be formally crowned Tsar, and in so doing laid claim to the mantle of the Byzantine Emperor as head of the Orthodox Christian world, and adopted the Byzantine double-headed eagle as his royal crest. Moscow thus became symbolically the so-called Third Rome, inheritor of both the Roman Empire and the Christian Church. As Geoffrey Husking writes in his book 
Russia and the Russians, from earliest time to the present, how his idea, quote, had considerable popular appeal and inculcated among ordinary Orthodox believers the conviction that their country had a special and exclusive mission to fulfil in the world. For an embattled people and vulnerable terrain, that was both a comforting and potentially intoxicating vision. End quote. As far as the world of steppe politics was concerned, Michael Hodokovsky writes in his book Russia's Step Frontier, the Making of a Colonial Empire, 1500 to 1800. The coronation and the title of Tsar implied a status equal to the descendants of the Chinggisid family, that is, of Genghis Khan, and thus a direct challenge to the rulers of the Crimea, Kazan and Astrakhan. The coronation marked a shift in the balance of power in favour of the Russians, Moscow's growing political ambitions and its rise to become a major military and economic power in Eastern Europe. The beginning of the transformation of Russia from a feudal society into a centralised monarchical state matched in some ways what was happening throughout Europe in this period. Yet the style of Muscovite governance differed markedly from its Western counterparts. Muscovy remained an agricultural society, fundamentally supported by the toil of its peasantry, with a merchant class but no social equivalent to the independent merchant guilds of the more industrialised West. There was a gentry, but its hallmark as a rising middle class was not entrepreneurship but state service. Three weeks after his coronation, Ivan IV married Anastasia Zakharina, the daughter of a prominent nobleman, whose family, later known as the Romanovs, in this way linked themselves to the ruling dynasty. Ivan, especially as he grew older and more confident of his powers, writes Geoffrey Hosking, took the view that his responsibilities entitled him to absolute power and the right to dispose without restraint of human life if deemed necessary for the good of the state. In some ways his views reflect the influence of the European Renaissance, especially the works of Machiavelli. Ivan used such writings to justify rule by autocracy in order to avoid the horrors of civil war or the kind of anarchy that Moscow experienced during his minority. Even before Ivan IV, the Russians were well used to the notion of submission to absolute rule. As Francis Carr writes in his biography of Ivan the Terrible, Ivan was thus blessed from the start with subjects used to subjection, and a nobility cravenly impressed by their monarch's aura of divinity. He quotes text from the first Westerner to write in detail about his experiences in Russia. Sigmund von Herbenstein, a diplomat working on behalf of the Holy Roman Emperors Maximilian I and Ferdinand I. Herbenstein's book, Moscovia, published first in Latin and then in German, was very popular and describes his surprise at the subservience of the Russian people to their rulers. Quote, All in the land call themselves their prince's slaves. The Grand Duke exercises power over both clergy and laymen, both property and life. None of his councillors have ever dared to gainsay his Lord's opinion. One and all agree that their Lord's will is the will of God. Vasily III had been unfortunate in war, yet his people call him unsuccessful. When there remain not half of his troops, 
they dared not say that they had lost a man. He holds one and all in the same subjection. End quote. Francis Carr believes this state of affairs was due to the Russians' long years of oppressive rule by Mongols, where servile submission became an accepted habit, and an all-powerful army came to be seen as a preferable alternative to enslavement by outsiders. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ivan IV's reign as Tsar began inauspiciously, when on the 21st of June, 1547, a major fire erupted in the centre of Moscow and quickly spread through the wooden city, so that within a matter of hours, most of the city centre lay in ruins. This triggered riots which had to be suppressed and resulted in the exile of the once powerful Galinsky clan. The only beneficiaries were the Romanovs and their allies who used the incident to consolidate their position around the throne. The first years of Ivan's reign witnessed a number of technical reforms of the church and government which helped centralise control in Moscow. Most important was the promulgation of a new law code and a number of military reforms. Ivan already had at his disposal an effective fighting force of noble cavalry which had learnt their trade in steppe warfare. They were now complemented with increased artillery by new contingents of musketeers, that is, foot soldiers with handguns. Another innovation of Ivan's government was the setting up of a force of a thousand elite cavalrymen, mostly members of the nobility, who were granted land in exchange for military service. In these ways, were initiated the formation of Moscow's first standing armies, who were responsible directly to the Tsar instead of to regional leaders. Ivan IV was also the first ruler to try and draw into his armies a group of people called the Cossacks, who lived on Muscovy's southern borders. The Cossacks had no state formation of their own. They roamed on horseback across the no-man's land of the so-called Wild Fields, which lay north of the Black Sea, in territories where none of their neighbours, Muscovy, Poland or the Carnates, were able to exercise full authority. Their story becomes more important in later centuries, so I'll talk more about them in future episodes. Thus equipped with a stronger and better organised army, Russian foreign policy became more aggressive, and it became clear that Ivan's primary aspiration was to expand his realm at the expense of his neighbours. 
to the south and east of Russian lands were a collection of Muslim successor states of the once mighty Golden Horde, once part of the Mongolian Empire formed by Genghis Khan. The most powerful of these Khanates, and Moscow's main rival for power in the region, was the Crimean Khanate, whose leader, Sahib Jirai, worked closely with the Ottoman Turks. The Khanate of Kazan, the main target of Moscow's plans for territorial expansion, was located 425 miles, or 684 kilometres, east of Moscow, downstream along the River Volga. The city of Kazan was located at the junction of several trade routes, such as the Volga route to the Caspian and the old steppe caravan route to Central Asia, which Russian leaders and merchants were eager to control for themselves. Of the other Khanates, Astrakhan was based at the mouth of the Volga, where it flowed into the Caspian, and the Siberian Khanate was based further east, and the nomadic Nogai Horde roamed in territory just east of the River Volga. Under the energetic leadership of Metropolitan Macarius, the Church played an important role in mobilising the community for struggle. As Robert O'Cromley writes in his book, The Formation of Muscovy, 1304-1613, quote, For one thing, the ecclesiastical councils canonised a number of native saints, some of whom, like Alexander Nevsky, symbolised the Orthodox Russian community victorious in war against the enemies of the faith and the motherland. Moreover, in their official statements, government and church portrayed relations with Kazan as a crusade. Orthodox Russia could achieve peace and security only after the cross had completely vanquished the crescent. End quote. Since 1521, the Russians and Crimeans had tussled for control over the ruling court of Kazan. The Khanate of Kazan was not a homogeneous realm, but rather a conglomeration of tribes some Tatar and also many non-Tatar, such as various Finnic tribes who were neither Christian nor Muslim and had no particular attachment to Kazan. Perpetual interference from outsiders prevented Kazan's leaders from achieving the political stability required to centralise control and build up a viable state. Both Moscow and Crimea at different times were able to place their own candidates on the throne, but no Khan of Kazan seemed able to hold on to power for more than a few years. Past Russian military campaigns against Kazan had proved inconclusive because without forward bases of operation in hostile terrain, they had been unable to hold their ground. To overcome this problem, in the year 1523, Vasily III founded the city of Vasilevsk. It was a new Russian fortress about halfway between Nizhny Novgorod and Kazan. After Vasily III's death, Kazan took advantage of Moscow's temporary weakness and re-established links with the Crimean Khanate. In 1539 and 1540, the Kazanis raided deep into Muscovite territory in coordination with attacks from the south from Crimea. The Khan of Crimea, Sahib Jirai, with the support of the Ottomans, meanwhile steadily asserted more authority over his realm and neighbours. He undertook a number of successful military campaigns, ranging from Moldavia in the west to the Caucasus in the east, 
and turn the Astrakhan Khanate into a Crimean vassal state, as well as increasing Crimean influence in Kazan. He also established a solid relationship with the nomadic Nogai Horde. The Nogais played a crucial role in the power politics of the Russian steppes. They consisted of several clans, some of whom supported the Russians and others the Crimeans. On the death of Vasily III, the Nogai leader, Ishmael, attempted to take advantage of Russian weakness by demanding large amounts of tribute and recognition of his superior status vis-à-vis the infant Grand Prince Ivan. The Muscovites firmly resisted, but in 1535, concerned about the growing influence of Sahib Jirai, were prepared to form an alliance. In return for numerous presents and items of weaponry, Ishmael promised to prevent the Crimeans or his Nogais from launching raids against Moscow. The Nogais benefited from trade with Moscow, especially the selling of horses from Central Asia to Moscow. Moscow is also considered by the Nogai leaders as a natural counterbalance to their rivals in Crimea and Astrakhan. However, they underestimated Moscow's increasing power, confidence and ambition. In April 1545, with Ivan reaching maturity, Moscow renewed its bid for control of Kazan. A Russian invasion in that year was not successful, but did help to destabilise once more politics in Kazan. In January 1546, the Khan of Kazan, Safajurai, the son of Sahib, was overthrown. By June, the Russians reinstalled their favourite, Shah Ali, but in July, Safajurai returned, toppled him from power and liquidated many of his supporters in the bloody purge. Moscow, meanwhile, took advantage of the restlessness of non-Tatar nationalities. Most importantly, a tribe called the Cheremis revolted against Kazan's rule and asked for Moscow's protection. Ivan IV was only too glad to oblige. He sent an army into the region and made it a base for expeditions against Kazan itself. From 1547, with Ivan, now crowned Tsar, the subjugation of Kazan became Moscow's primary foreign policy objective. To this end, Ivan signed a treaty with Lithuania, which allowed him to concentrate his military in the east. Please join me next week for the third and concluding part of the Siege of Kazan. Until then, have a good week and goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.